This is Mission.org. I don't have a lot of use for somebody who knows a specific tool and is a master at that, but just knows what buttons to push and how to work the machine. I'd much rather have somebody who's never used that tool before, but really wants to understand why it works and why we use it. Creating a winning team is no easy feat. You have to find the right people with the right mindset, all while making sure to keep the competitive edge that's so vital in the world of marketing. Ed Locker, the VP of Marketing at HG Insights, is here to talk about how he manages to shape his team while also promoting empathy and curiosity within the ranks. Learn all this and more right here on Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, and I'm excited to take you on a ride with me today. Let's get into it. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. This stat says that 72% of marketers say meeting customer expectations is more difficult than it was a year ago, two years ago. How has this kind of played out for you at HG Insights? And and what is your team doing to tackle the consistent challenge of rising customer expectations? Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised 28% feel that they're getting it right. I think it's 100% fair that as people are transferring their perceptions, their experiences as a normal human being in the everyday life into their work world. So one thing I like to say to to our team is that a business never bought anything, right? People buy things. And if you're not connecting with them in a compelling way on an emotional level during their self-directed journey, you're missing the boat, right? And so I think that translates somewhat into how a customer these days expects to get information, to be entertained. And so this is you know, my challenge to our team and to myself and, and what we think about every day is how do we create that compelling moment that meets expectations, hopefully exceeds expectations, and speaks to them as an individual to create that aha moment, right? So marketers have been talking about the aha moment since marketing was a thing. It's actually one of the the greatest sense of satisfaction that I get as a marketer because where I've been fortunate enough to work, IBM, Digital Globe, Esri, and now HG, 
when you get that aha moment, you can visibly see it on someone's face. <laughs> the first time someone understands how you can use commercial satellite imagery to solve a problem that they had before, it's visible. The first time that somebody recognizes the power of what HG Insights can deliver from a sales operations perspective, from a sales perspective, from a marketing perspective, it's visible. They're like, like oh my God, I had no idea. Our challenge has been to exceed those expectations. And why I think they're getting harder is the self-directed journey that you know technology has powered, right? So people can engage with your brand through multiple channels, any time of day, 24-7. The pandemic has pushed us into our home environment even more, which means it's that line between work and personal has become even blurrier. And so, you know, at, at two o'clock in the afternoon, I may be you know, doing something for myself. And at 2.15, I'm back in the role of, of my job. And my expectations aren't any different in that 15 minutes where maybe you had that transition point when you were, took the train into work or when you commuted. Okay, I'm, I'm business ed now, right? And, and so I can be a little bit more aloof or now I'm a steward as opposed to being an individual. And so really creating that emotional connection to exceed expectations is more challenging because people's expectations have risen and they want to be able to engage in a way that they want. They want valuable information that's meaningful and customized to them. And that's hard to do. Intellectually, it's easy to understand why that would be important, but it's hard to do. I think about our business as well. You know, and, and we, we think about this B2B buyer who is very elusive, right? And fragmented and, and often, you know, like you said, self-directed and they're making decisions often in, in small pods or small teams and, and connecting with these people is, is a great, beautiful challenge. It's a, it's a puzzle that we constantly talk about and think about how can we engage with this very elusive B2B buyer? Because we're probably like yourself, we're, we're working with large enterprise brands and they're, they're large and many of them are old and sometimes a little bit stodgy. It's such a puzzle that we're curious about solving and it's, it's daily for us. And, and so I, I'd love to hear more about that. We'll, we'll get into your perspective there. Another point here, 90% of marketers say that the, you know, the last couple of years, you know, pre and post pandemic has changed their digital engagement strategy. If this is the case for you, what, what are some new strategies and tactics that your team's adopted over the past you know, year and change? This one, I might be part of the 10%. So I grew up in demand gen at IBM, and, and that's been my career arc. And in-person events have always been a significant part of my life. I hate it. <laughs> uh, the opportunity cost and the investment required to participate in those types of events, to me, makes it very, very difficult to see a, a respectable return if you're looking for new customers. I do think there's a role for events. I think if it brings all of your buyers to the same city for three days and you can get your sales teams there and you can progress your pipeline that already exists by solidifying those relationships, getting some solid one-on-one -on -one time, being able to talk about you know, some of those challenges that we're able to solve, Absolutely. I think that makes a ton of sense. But just the ROI on getting a new customer at, through an in-person event, I think is pretty rough. And so I've spent about five to seven years up until just this morning, really trying to put a lot of pressure on that in-person engagement. And again, it goes back to the self-directed engagement, right? So even if somebody does go to an event, what did they look at before and after the event it carries as much weight, if not more, than what actually happened on the show floor. And so I wouldn't say that 
digital has become more important. From my perspective, it's become easier to justify the evolution towards more digital as a percentage of marketing spend and things like that. With the tools that are available over the last five to seven years on this personalization at scale and this and this quest for the MQL, you can get real personalized at scale in a way that makes in-person events or some of the more traditional marketing channels and tactics just pale by comparison. And the metrics and reporting capabilities that are available, again, back at Esri, where we did a lot of in-person events, and you do the math on the amount of money that you have to spend in the lead up, including people's time. And you could, if you repurpose all of that energy and time and money to a digital strategy, it allows you to measure and track in ways that are impossible. And you don't have to have nearly as much upfront investment. So what I like to do is what I call test and invest. Certainly, this is, I'm not unique in this, but I would much rather put together five different variables in a digital channel, run a small test, find out which one is, is creating that aha moment with my target audience, and then double down with the rest of the spend. At an event, I can't do that. I can't do five tiny events, find one event that works well, and then invest the rest of the budget in that event. So the ability to measure and track and to optimize ROI in real time, to me, is what has made the difference from a digital perspective. So again, very long-winded answer to say, I'm probably in the 10%, but what it has done is it helped me justify this move away or this move towards more digital. Much of the business intelligence landscape is focused on what happened in the past. You know, the system takes data from the last quarter, past year or whenever, and then it'll tell you what happened. You know, past tense analysis can be useful, but it's no longer enough. How can companies and brands use things like augmented analytics to, to really forecast future events and then deliver solutions? I literally had this conversation with a couple of people in, in the company, and I've been having this ongoing conversation with our board for six months, which is exactly what you just said. The dashboards that we've built so far are but rearward facing, right? This is what we did in the quarter. What we've done and what we've decided to focus on is really placing a lot of our bets from a metrics perspective on what we consider to be early indicators, which would then translate into hopefully, and we're not quite there yet, but this is a never ending journey, but we're still in the early stages, will translate into a predictability on the funnel that allows us to understand what's going to happen with enough time to do something about it. And so as a marketer, one of my favorite companies is Disney. And as a person, I just, I love Disney. I'm one of those adult Disney fans that. Same, same, big fan. That people mock. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'm okay with yeah, that. Me too. <laughs> uh, but as a marketer, Disney, I think does things that are incredible, right? So Disney knows what their occupancy needs to be in January for October, right? And so I have two kids and I went to Disney World three times in four years. So I was on every list that Disney had. And they know that in February, we're supposed to be at 40% occupancy for the month of October. And if they're at 35% occupancy, they start sending offers to guys like me that say, book your destination in October and we'll, we'll upgrade your meal plan. And I'm like, that's fantastic. I, I, I'll take it. 
and so I booked my time and, and, you know, they got me because they knew where they were supposed to be with enough time to do something about it. And so at HG, you know, we don't focus on the MQL. And I think that there's a bell curve of marketers. And I think probably, and maybe I'm just trying to make myself feel better because I'm kind of going out on a limb here with my, with my board and my CEO. But I think a MQL is a vanity metric in three or four years. I just don't think that it's going to be this ever-loving journey, destination, perfect fit that marketers were promised back a couple of years ago. Because just because somebody completes a form doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to be a good customer. And there is so much subtlety in the funnel and so many places where you can break that chain of attribution. Putting all of your eggs in the MQL basket is significantly underrepresents marketing's contribution to organizational value. And so we're focusing on these early indicators of, you know, engagement on LinkedIn. We make crazy long videos, eight, nine, 10 minute videos, because data is a different animal. It's not a next feature. It's something that you need to wrap your head around. We're getting senior level people, SVPs, CMOs, chief revenue officers to spend 11 minutes on an ungated video in LinkedIn. No MQL associated with that, but we know that the title of these people and the account that where they work are engaging with this content. And so again, tying it back to the self-directed journey, can we build a dashboard that says at the account level, we're getting 13 members of the buying group that are existing Salesforce's contacts on that opportunity to engage with our videos, with our content, not gated, but ultimately what we show is that if we have, if when we see that we can get three or four people added to the buying group and three or four people of the, of the buying group are engaging with our content and we have definitions. It's three web visits or over eight minutes on the page or more than 50% completion of these videos. That counts in the old terms an MQL. And so if we can see that at the account level, people are engaging with this con- ungated content, that gives us the ability to predict that marketing is going to deliver a 13% increase in average deal size. There is the potential to take eight days out of the sales cycle. So we're increasing the velocity. And in some cases, we're doubling the close rate. And so that is forward looking that if we're getting engagement outside of the normal MQL process, that these good things will happen. And so we've benchmarked all of the past performance for sure. So I I track MQLs because I still think there's some value there. But we've got those. And then we use these impression engagement and what we call marketing impacted, which is, you know, that engagement level to be able to predict whether or not those accounts are going to close in the future. So, so far, so good. We've seen some early indicators. I think there's still a lot of work to do on making sure that we're capturing all of that self-directed engagement. And it's not quite so easy because everything's not connected yet. So there's a lot of manual stuff. And I got a guy on my team whose job it is to tie all this stuff together. But it's been an important investment for us. And I, I think it's really starting to pay off. I already love the way you're thinking about it. Like, you know, these terms you throw out MQL, you know, it's, it's this vernacular and you're thinking, well, wait a second, like, what if we almost re- reprioritize metrics a bit and started to look at these things, like you said, marketing impacted, that's an interest. Is it marketing impacted? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. Marketing impacted, you know, and different metrics like that. I think that's really interesting. Take us out five years now. And and what does the future of the space that you're in look like for brands beyond from 2022? Take us out five years. What do you see in this space? What does the future of business intelligence look like? 
boy, I wish I knew. <laughs> I'd, I'd, uh, I'd have a much better career and I wouldn't need to work because I know where to invest. You're on the right track though, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question and one I, I do think about quite a bit because, you know, seven years ago, I, I was part of the herd that was chasing the MQL, right? And, and I was just blown. I went to Adobe Summit one year and, and they stood up on the podium and they did their Look, on first visit, we can customize based upon your cookie on the visits that you visited. And I'm and I, like everybody else in the audience, I was like, oh, be, 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 like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But then I, you know, I dug in for three years on <laughs> that unbroken chain of attribution. And there is a lot of places where that truck goes into the ditch. Five years from now, I would expect that because of where we're headed from a privacy perspective, that this hyper-personalization and the creepy factor is going to be a significant guardrail for marketers, right? I think we will have the capability to do some really amazing and really creepy things. And I think people are going to have a reaction to that. And they're already starting to see that, right? And, and I don't believe that there is going to be, and we're moving towards the cookie-less future too. So they're not going to bring the, be able to bring this entire online history to bear at your first visit and things like that. Having said that, as customer expectations continue to rise and people expect to get value, I think because companies will be forced to be even more transparent than they are today, that they will focus more on what they are. So not just the business value, but I think they're going to have to adopt a more holistic approach and those brands that are able to separate themselves are going to be the winners. And from a BI perspective, or what tools are you going to use to do that? I think, you know, there's probably some apps that are going to be invented. I think that there's going to be some new buzzwords and, and terms. But I do believe that anything that can help deliver sort of this predictability that we talked about is going to be important. The emotional connection that people can make is going to be even more important. So if you consider video five years ago, maybe even 10 was sort of, hey, it would, it's really cool, but it was $10,000 a minute and it wasn't that easy and, and people really didn't know how to do it. But right now we're flirting with just, you know, literally Apple Cam or Apple phone or, or smartphone videos that are making real connections with customers. And so I think smaller, snappier, video engagement that is emotional in nature, that is compelling enough to create a sense of urgency to defeat the no decision, which is everybody's biggest customer. And then finally, how do we continue to allow people to discover information about us quicker, easier, faster? Now, from the seller's perspective, from a vendor's perspective, you're still going to have to prioritize, right? Not every customer is a good customer. And so the tools that we have available, similar to like HG, but lots of other players are out there, are helping companies force rank those with the highest propensity to buy. And even though buyers are people and not companies, accounts are very easy to discover what actually is happening at that account. And I think that that trend will continue. You're going to get more fidelity on those monitoring tools so that you will be able to say, okay, a company all of a sudden is starting, 80% of their cloud infrastructure is on AWS, but over here in Charleston, South Carolina, we've seen a 30% spike on Google Cloud at the same account. What's going on there? 
right? Are they are they testing a move to Google Cloud? Is it a different you know sequestered sort of space? And that kind of information is always going to be critical for a company's ability to to sell their goods, right? But that's where those two things are going to meet: the art and the science. So if the science is telling you that okay, they're moving towards Google Clouds, you're still going to have to have that emotional connection that compelling content that is available in a self-directed journey on those accounts that are that have the highest propensity to buy. So I'm very excited. I mean, it's there are some days I wake up and I'm like, God dang, this space is moving so fast. How can I even keep up? But most days I'm like, this is pretty cool, <laughs> right? It's worth the price of admission just to come in and see what's going to happen. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, you, and you said something interesting around the art and science. And I think I'm learning this more and more. It seems to be true with, with other marketing leaders like yourself that I get a chance to connect with. And it really appears that a modern day marketing leader like yourself really has to have a nice dance with both the art and the science. It's both the right and the left brain. And I think in years past, other marketing leaders potentially didn't have to ha- not have to be so well-rounded. But today, to be relevant, to stay in the seat, continue to grow. And, and as you know, the, the marketing leader is such a unique leader in, in the organization. You're setting the tone of so many things and involved in so much. I'm curious for your experience, though, the, the art and the science. So where did you feel like you were able to cult with your days back at previous companies where you were kind of cultivating the art and science of things? Did you have a propensity for both kind of out the gate when you first got into marketing? When did that begin? Because you, you clearly have a good view of both of those things. And I'd love to hear that, how that started for you. Yeah, it's nice of you to say that. It's obviously you don't know me that well. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so you know, 40 years ago, brand was all art, right? It was likes, impressions, you know, brand folks. And, and not many CEMOs became CEOs. Marketing in large part was built on, trust me, this is going to be big. Maybe the campaign worked, maybe it didn't, you didn't know. And if your company grew, maybe it was because of you, maybe it wasn't, but you didn't know. And then we had this knee-jerk reaction with you know, the marketing automation platforms and the integration with the CRM and all those things. And that was all about the data, right? And, and you don't need to worry about any of that stuff. And so the pendulum swing all the way back. And so now I think we're, we're finding that balance. For my own personal journey, I would say... I was very lucky in that the roles that I was able to get at the time set me up nicely for where the market was going. I wish I could say I was smart enough to say, you know, 10 years ago, I'm like, well, you really need to get this on your resume because this is going to set you up in a nice position 10 years down the road. I just, I, I didn't have that foresight, but I was very lucky in that I've always had an affinity for the data and the science behind it. So I have an undergraduate degree in chemistry. I have a master's in, in telecom and in engineering. And so I always loved the data. I was this close to going into finance at my in graduate school. So understanding the data and making data-driven decisions was never foreign to me. And I've actually had to struggle a little bit more on the art side. And so I typically can't match my own clothes. <laughs> like I have to ask my wife, does this go? And it seems strange when I when I'm, you know, the leader of the marketing organization for these organizations. And and you know, at, in the case of Digital Globe, we were 750 million at the time. <laughs> so there's a guy who can't dress himself and he's in charge of the brand for, for Digital Globe. And thankfully I was at B2B, right? And back in the day it didn't matter because it was companies buy stuff. And so you just had to be very sensitive to that. But the fact that I know that that's not my low energy state and that I have to work at it, I really spend a lot of time thinking about that aha moment, the fact that we need to have something compelling to say 
And it's not just about the data. And so the data can tell you, again, those accounts with the highest propensity to buy, but it does not cross the river to get you all the way home on, you know, are they actually going to do something? And so I've always tried to focus on pain points, very like everybody else in marketing. There's, there's nothing unique about that. But then being real crystal clear on specifically what do we solve? So at Digital Globe, you know, our customers, when I got there, were primarily three-letter agencies and the governments and nation states because who else uses commercial satellite imagery? And so they realized they had this incredibly valuable asset, literally a time machine that could show you what the face of the earth looked like 10 years ago. Hey, maybe somebody in the commercial space would want to buy that. And so we had to fundamentally change how we were talking to because orthorectification, sun-synchronous orbits, 30 centimeter, center, 30 centimeter resolution compared to 50 centimeter, like what, can you, what are those differences? You're talking to a CIA analyst, they know exactly what all that stuff means. You're talking to somebody at a hedge fund who wants to go long or short on Walmart based upon cars in a parking lot. None of that stuff matters, right? Sun-synchronous orbits means you only have one revisit every day. So do you want to take the shot every day or is it enough that you get it once a week? Or do you need to tell the difference between a Honda Accord and a Toyota Camry? That's where the resolution comes in. So really working hard to create a direct line between this is a problem that I have and pain that I'm feeling and how I solve that is that art piece. And at HG, where, the, where data, again, is it's a very different animal. What we sell is trust. Data is interesting, but if they don't believe that what we are selling them, we have a real problem. And so data in the way that we're talking about it right now can't give you trust that we're the right company. I can get a force rank list of one to 500 of companies that are sophisticated enough to take our data and really make a lot of hay with it. That's fantastic. Does nothing to convince those 500 companies that they can trust our data. Right. And so I've, I've had to surround myself with people that have more of that natural affinity for the art of it. So the brand, the colors, that higher level stuff. But then really where I do think I can participate in that conversation is around the story and the narrative and creating that compelling moment where people are like, I got to do something. may not be with you, but I got to do something. I can't, I can no longer afford the status quo. This message is brought to you by Salesforce. With Salesforce, your teams have everything they need to collaborate, engage customers, grow revenue, and build long-term customer relationships all while working from anywhere. Get free marketing guidance and resources at sfdc.co slash marketer dash resources. I'd love to shift into just your perspective on culture and kind of, and, and setting the culture as the marketing leader. And you've worked at some amazing companies. You're still at an amazing company at HG Insights. How do you create the right culture as a marketing leader? The first people manager job that I got, I got all the way to my annual review, the first one. And my boss looked me in the eye and he said, Ed, you are aware you have no empathy, right? And I'm like, I did not know that. But to be fair, someone with no empathy would not know that they had no empathy. <laughs> and so <laughs> thank you for telling me, but I wouldn't have gotten there on my own. And we talked about it a little bit. And, and he's like, look, people are not company assets, right? You don't own them. We don't own them. They have a life 
you know, work is part of that life. And for some people, it is the most important part of their life. For others, it is not. <laughs> and you need to really recognize that everybody is different. And that was not, again, my natural state, right? I'm like, oh, I'm a people manager. I got, and, and I actually derive a lot of my identity through my work, right? So I think work is very important to me. So I'm, I'm very interested in creating a team and a culture and working at a company that I can be proud of. And so that's sort of the metric that I use is, you know, do I feel good about going into work? Is there stuff that I can do to improve that? So I spend a lot of my time working with the team and really trying to emulate a manager that I had earlier in my career. A guy's name was Bert, and he was the best person manager I've ever had. I've had people that were friendlier, that were nicer, that maybe cared about us as individuals more than Bert. But where Bert was phenomenal was he would take the time to coach and he would invest into his time into you. And so he was present. He, uh, he cared about us as people for sure, but never once did I go to Bert and say, what should I do and have him tell me? He never told me what to do. He said, well, what do you think? Like, what, what should we do? What are some ideas? And so I've tried to, you know, what would Bert do is something that I ask myself a lot. So when I'm building the team culture, and maybe the, the best case of this was when I was at Sharewell, when I arrived, there was some trust issues with sales, although not nearly as bad as some of the other places that I worked, but there were trust issues within our own team from a marketing perspective. And so really getting people to understand and be empathetic to what other people are doing. It was an international team. It was spread all over. And the previous regime had centralized a lot of the marketing ops activities. So there was a very small team that was basically tasked with doing what everybody else told them to do. And with the marketing automation platforms and the tools that were available, you didn't need to do that, right? You could push that work out to the edges. And from a career perspective, it was better for them to know that anyway. It was harder at the beginning. But just that simple shift of, look, we're going to be responsible for our own work. We're not just going to be reliant on some group because organizationally, it says they have operations in their team, in their title. And we are going to become not a family, because I agree that, you know, your work is not your family, but we are going to be a high performing team because we will always treat each other with respect in every situation. We will be empathetic to what other people are doing, and we will never forget that people are people first. And, you know, again, earlier in my career, when people would quit, I took it personally. I'm like, are you out of your minds? Like, why, why would you leave? But for them at that point, it was the right decision. And so I've always tried to support them going forward. And, and, you know, I've always been very clear that, look, I understand. I love having you here. What can we do to make sure that there's a nice growth path for you? But if you feel that there is a better opportunity for somewhere else, I would want you to come talk to me about it. If you have questions about it, is this a good path for me? What do you think? And I can wear sort of two hats. I can be manager ed and I can be mentor ed. And I'm always there for, from a mentor perspective to have that conversation. And I've been very surprised and impressed at the amount of trust that people were willing to put in that relationship. Because it's pretty scary. I mean, you're going to go to your manager and say, hey, I'm thinking about leaving. This is another job over here. What do you think? And the first time somebody did that, I couldn't believe it. 
And it must have shown on my face because they're like, uh, you said that we could do this. I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm happy to con- I'm happy to have the talk with you. I'm just I'm surprised because it just it required a lot of trust. But that's what I, I try to build. I try to build trust. I try to build transparency and accountability. And I try to make sure that people are empathetic, even though that is not a simple, easy strength of mine. The fact that it isn't means I'm constantly thinking about it. And I'm trying to do my best. Can you tell us? What's like one skill you've cultivated and continue to cultivate it over your career that still benefits you to this day? I don't know that it's a skill as much as it is a trade. I mean, it's, I just like to know why things work. Like I, I, I'm just a naturally curious person. I, I went to school far too long, right? I have several undergrad, I have several master's degree. I was going to go to law school and my wife was like, you're done. Like, go get a job. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's, that's fair. You're right. I, I have enough. But I just, I've always been fascinated by why things work. I'm a terrible person at a cocktail party because I'm an introvert, but I love talking to people about their jobs, what they do, what's the hardest part of their job and, and things like that. And so I want to cultivate that on our team in every instance. I don't have a lot of use for somebody who knows a specific tool and is a master at that, but just knows what buttons to push and, and how, to, how to work the machine. I'd much rather have somebody who's never used that tool before, but really wants to understand why it works and why we use it. Because in two years, when we get a new tool, the former, the first person isn't going to be that much that useful for me, but the second person is now going to be even more valuable because they'll have that combined skill set. Cultivating curiosity, answering questions, asking questions. One mistake I think marketers make is I think most of them don't invest enough time in understanding what they're selling, particularly from in the B2B space and particularly in the SaaS space, because it's easy to fall into the trap that I'm a, I'm a SaaS product marketer, not a product marketer by title, but I, I market SaaS products. And therefore I know, to, I know how to do it, right? I know how to build the, the demand gen engine. I know how to do the product marketing piece. I know how to do communications, but they don't spend enough time really understanding the product that they're selling and the, and the pain that they're solving. And even in my case, I would say I'm still behind the curve on the HG data after a year and a half, right? I, it's just, this is my first time in this particular space. And it just takes a while. I don't think I'm particularly unintelligent. It just takes a while to wrap your head around some of that stuff. And so I want that on our team and I can see it in their faces. They're like, why? Like, I may not be here next year. I'm like, you may not, but you might. And it doesn't matter, right? You should invest as much time as you possibly can in truly understanding your customer your product, what you're selling, and what that bridge is between those two. And so that's what I try to try to get the team to do on a regular basis. On the note of, of personalization, you talked about this a little bit earlier, the right offer to the right customer at the right time and the right channel is this kind of data-fueled aspiration. First question is kind of how are you leveraging personalization these days? Because we're seeing this trend where seamless omni-channel experiences replace this kind of physical digital patchwork, right? Where consumers are engaging from their choice, physical, traditional, digital channel. Businesses are going to have to unify these conversations and keep this going. I know me as a consumer, I look for that, this kind of asynchronous omni-channel experience. Are you seeing this as well? Any stories or examples around this? So from a personalization perspective, we're striking while the iron is hot, but I think the personalization capabilities is going to be curtailed a bit in the not too distant future where we're going with PII and the cookie list future and things like that. And so 
there will always be the need for customization, personalization, whatever you want to call it. Right now, we're finding success at the account level. And so whether or not I know that it's Jeremy at XYZ, I know that the senior VP of sales ops at XYZ is engaging with us. You could say that that's personalization because I can create persona-based content. I can drive to Path Factory pages or, or resource pages specifically curated for senior VPs of sales ops. I can do those things and that's quote unquote personalization, but I, I'm actually sort of bracing for the future where the person isn't part of that. <laughs> right? So HG very specifically has chosen to keep an arm's length from contact data. Right. And so that's where sort of this rubber meets the road on the legislation and, and things like that. And yes, of course, Many times a day, our sales reps are out there and, and we're talking about the value that we provide on our ability to prioritize accounts from one to 500. And the very first question they ask is, okay, then who should I call? And so there is definitely a need for that connection, that bridge to the individual. But from a marketing perspective, I actually don't need that in order to be successful to create these self-directed engagement opportunities at the account level because title is enough, right? And the channels that we use allow us to create those personalized experiences for that level of individual at those accounts. And I can get hyper-specific on that. I don't wanna say it's the lazy way, but it's, it's a lazy way to get to bypass the whole contact data and challenge that exists there. But personalization and customization will be important because that compelling value moment doesn't happen unless you are speaking to them specifically. So I'm a marketing leader. If somebody comes and tells me that they can solve all of my territory planning problems, <laughs> I, I, I don't have any territory planning problems, right? And you're not going to be able to solve those for me because they don't exist. Let me introduce you to, this, to the sales ops guy. That guy has territory planning problems coming out of his ears. So unless you can do that level of personalization at the at the least at the account level or the title level, you're sort of dead in the water. You know, it's interesting you said arm's length of the contact data. I remember engaging with your website, you have all this content and I can access, I think virtually almost everything on the site. I, I, I was even kind of putzing around this morning looking at some of the white papers and use cases and no one asked me for any contact information. So is that what you mean when you say kind of arm's length from contact info? From our actual motion of lead generation, yes. In a, in a more strategic perspective, HD doesn't sell contact data. So we don't sell information on an individual. There is always a, a call to action there that you can raise your hand and say, please talk to me. Our theory is I would much rather have meaningful contact and engagement points at scale over multiple periods of time across the entire buying group than a form complete on a white paper, which nobody's going to read, call quits at the end of the day, because I don't think I create as much value as a marketing person, even though that's easier for me to track. So, you know, again, earlier in my career, five years ago, it was all about the MQL and look how great we are. Uh, marketing is killing it. We're doing a thousand MQLs a month. And my first realization is you can't stop measuring it 
at MQL, you got to go all the way through close one because if you have a thousand MQLs a month and two of them convert to an opportunity, you know, you can pat yourself all the way to bankruptcy. And so really understanding from first visit through closed one is marketing's domain. And that I think is a little bit of a, a paradigm shift for some in that because marketing doesn't close, and this is the excuse that I use, right? I, I should not be held accountable for that. I don't know how to close. I'm not closing. That's your job in sales, right? And so there's that age old natural tension. Your leads are awful. You don't know how to close. But if where I've been able to rebuild and, and really, I think, accelerate alignment between marketing and sales is by being willing to say, I own from first visit through close one, right? And where I'm at now, I have a very enlightened sales leader where we there at the end of every month, there is no meeting between him and me and his VP of sales ops and my marketing ops person to say, who's responsible for that? You just don't know, right? And nobody gets paid any differently generally on whether it's marketing sourced or sales sourced. So it's a whole lot of calories burned. There's a whole lot of morale issues surrounded that exercise for like literally no payoff because marketing likely isn't doing anything different based upon the attribution. Hopefully they're, they're testing and investing and optimizing the go-to-market to maximize that number. But nobody's going to make a decision and say, I'm going to do something different based upon whether that's marketing attributed or sales attributed. And nobody got paid on it any differently from an SDR and account exec. So why? Like, why bother? The answer that people will give you is that, well, when you're hitting your number, everybody's friends and you miss a quarter or two and people start pointing fingers. And wouldn't it be nice if marketing can say, oh, I generated 40% of the pipeline. And, and my response to that is marketing doesn't win if we're not hitting our number, right? That's not a sustainable exercise. And so in two companies in my past, when I joined, completely dysfunctional and no trust between sales and marketing. And our willingness to be transparent, here's our KPIs, here's how we're going to hold ourselves accountable. Oh, and by the way, we're tracking this all the way through closed one, has been the reason that sales and marketing sort of got aligned and started to trust each other once again. Because, you know, sales is binary. Every 90 days, you did it or you didn't. And there's an intense amount of pressure. And for marketing to say, good luck with that, right? We gave you a bunch of leads, you know, hopefully you hit your number is a little bit unfair because we're part of that go-to-market motion too. And so right now I'm in the throes of exposing our KPIs and those dashboards that we talked about a little bit earlier. Anybody in sales can go in and take a look at those and say, why or why not? Are you hitting it? You've written about effective leadership and about leadership and fear. You had some posts on LinkedIn from like 2020, like your thought leadership is really good. I hope you keep writing and sharing that because you had interesting perspective. Yeah, some great stuff. Let's begin with this relationship, you know, to fear. Uh, in your career, was there a moment when you were particularly fearful? And, and what did that experience teach you? Yeah, every promotion. And you get that imposter syndrome, like, what am I doing here? Am I supposed to be in this meeting? Fear is, is maybe a strong word, but I think it, in my case, I think it was appropriate. I just, I don't want to fail, right? And so when you try something new, when you put it out there to grow, that's scary. Moving away from MQLs, scary. Right, I had to go and, and talk to the board and say, this is, I understand what you're asking. This is why I'm not going to give it to you. So it can be a motivator. I think I, I think I wrote about that. Hopefully it doesn't dissuade anybody from doing, you know, some challenging things. And then 
break out the the geekness, I think it, Dumbledore said, or, or I don't know if he was quoting somebody else, was, you know, there will come a time when we can do what's easy or what's right. And I really want always to come down on the side of doing what's right, even if it's scary. Do you think a poor response to fear is at the heart of an effective leadership? I think it can be a, a, a huge contributor. So there was a, a person in my past who literally at, at at least one occasion, I was actually in the room, but enough people talked. I mean, he got up on the table and he was just yelling at people. Like he stood on the table and he's yelling at the team. Right? Wow. And, and intimidation is not leadership. Reliance on institutional authority is not leadership. And again, I go back to Bert and just how effective he was as a leader. I would have run through fire for Bert because he believed in me. He was investing in me and he was, I believe, probably should have been more afraid of what he had given me in the way of opportunities and the ability to, to do what I wanted or what I thought was right. Hopefully I had enough fear for both of us. But you know, if, if people are afraid, they do crazy things. You just think about those stories of people who are drowning and you know, someone goes in to rescue them and they drag them both down. You lose your sense, sometimes your rationality and you make decisions that are very, very questionable and suspect. And so being able to manage it and Again, fortunately, I've chosen a career and I've worked in a space that nobody's life is at risk. Like, and I tell my team this all the time, like right, right before a big webinar or whatever. I'm like, look, nobody's on the table. Nobody dies. <laughs> if this goes wrong, you know, we'll deal with it and, and you know, let's keep things in perspective. And so it can be scary putting yourself out there, but I'm not operating on somebody's heart. And if it goes wrong, somebody loses their life. So that helps to helped balance it, I think. Ed, this has been an exceptional conversation. Thank you so much for making time and space to be here with us. I thoroughly enjoyed this one. This was a really cool deep dive into your path, your perspective. And I'm still very bullish on what HG Insights is up to in this space. And so congrats again on all your success. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. I had a great time. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages 
to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.